Now, um, as you know, we are um, coming through um, the Bible in segments, and um, we are putting the Institute into book form. Um, there'll be seven lessons per book. Um, I think they've got two volumes done. Now, they're not printed yet, but they're, I think the ladies just checked them out and working on them. And uh, so this material will be available that you can uh, uh, get it to always, uh, like a set of commentaries <clears throat> on the Bible. And I think that, uh, you know, that'll be helpful in future references. It'll never take the place that, <clears throat> you know, of, of us going and doing it. Woody, I'm ringing up here. <clears throat> um, it'll never take the place of us going through it again because the interaction is just as invaluable. But it'll give you a source of reference to always go back to if you want to look things up. At some point in your life, um, uh, if you're going to really not only learn the Bible but maintain the Bible, uh, you're going to have to build yourself uh, a pretty good uh, reference library. Um, stuff that, um, and, and I always found it that came into a couple of different categories. Uh, you'll find, you'll want stuff that uh, are 100% trustworthy. That whenever you have a question, you know the bottom line is here. Then you'll want a section that, that uh, maybe is 50, 60, 70% trustworthy. Uh, <clears throat> and that'll be, uh, that'll be books uh, about the Bible or history that it's not always accurate biblically, but there's enough facts in it historically that you'll want to get those things and you can get your Bible someplace else. Then the third section will be worthless stuff. <clears throat> And that'll be stuff that you, that you actually get nothing out of from the Bible, but you've got to know it because you're going to bump into it all the time dealing with people. So uh, you, know, you want to build yourself that library at some point. Most of you are new to this, and you're, you're coming along very well. But, uh, you know, I throw those things out to you as you, as you go along. Uh, you know, you see most pastors, <clears throat> honestly, um, their library and their office would be just, Ends, 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 ends of books. And uh, the truth of the matter is that they never read any of them. And uh, there seems to be in the ministry a, a status of how many books you have that when people come in, they think you know a lot because look at all the books you got. Uh, <clears throat> and, and you want to keep your library as, as, as tight as possible, as small as possible, but as workable as possible. Only put things in there in those three categories are going to help you majorly the things that are really going to, uh, uh, to put you, uh, you know, and give you what you need. You always want to have a, be a reference library to be able to fall back on. <clears throat> I have most of that in my Bible, and I don't really have to go to many books, but I don't remember up here. I have it set up such a way that it'll jog my memory, but I just have about every subject that anyone ever could talk about or anybody could ask me about in here that if I get in the jam, I can go to it. Um, and that's what you want to do. Uh, the, the, and that's why I always say, uh, you know, the best study Bible, and you can buy everybody's study Bible on the planet, the best study Bible is your own. Get a wide margin. For those of you who are really, 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 really into it, uh, big time, you get the really good wide margin and, and then just make that your study Bible. And it'll be a thing that uh, it'll be uh, invaluable to you. So we have been coming through 17 sections and my goal was for you to learn each section. If you do what I'm telling you to do, and you're supposed to, every month you're supposed to show up with 
the last one nailed down. <clears throat> the last one was the second coming of Christ. So if you'll do that and you'll stay up on it and stay current and keep reviewing it, by the time we get to, through this section, um, you'll really have a handle on the Bible as far as overall understanding it. Then we'll go to work on the internal stuff of the Bible. And we'll look at all the things that are, that are in there. Now today, <clears throat> we're going to look at um, a major chunk of your Bible. And uh, this is probably, without a doubt, the most misunderstood, badly taught question mark in most pastors, Christians' minds about what we're going to talk about today. And uh, we're going to talk about the millennial reign of Christ today. It's probably the most, well it goes hand in hand with the second coming. So, <clears throat> But I would say that the, probably the second coming and the millennium are the two most documented uh, events in all of the Bible. Uh, I would say that 85% of your Bible, certainly in the Old Testament, will fall into this. Now, one of the things you want to remember, and, and we have a tendency to teach this, and... These are the reasons why you come to Bible Institute to learn because we teach it right, but we don't teach it complete. Now, I've told you many, many times that the day of the Lord is the second coming of Christ, and that is true. Uh, you'll find reference and reference and reference and reference. And I've told you many, many times too, but I don't know if you remember it or not, that the millennial reign of Christ is also the day of the Lord. And that's because that day... The day of the Lord lasts a thousand years. And it starts with the second coming. That's the beginning of the day. And then it carries through the next 1,000 years. Uh, so it starts with the second coming of Christ and then runs for a thousand years. Uh, turn over to Genesis chapter 1 here. Let me, let me show you uh, how it works here. And this is one of the great unknown places in the Bible. Now, there are lots and lots of examples of the millennial reign of Christ in the Bible and um, show you every detail of it because, it's, as I said, it's that and the second coming uh, are probably the most uh, written about anywhere in all the Bible. But we know that when God created everything, he created it in six days and then he rests on the seventh, the seventh-day creation. Uh, you don't go two chapters in Genesis, really one chapter, that you don't see that man uh, is going to be on this earth for 6,000 years and then the seventh day or the 7,000 year uh, is going to be the millennial reign of Christ. He told us over in uh, Exodus chapter 20 when he talked about um, them remembering the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. He said that six days uh, you're going to do all your work and then you're going to rest the seventh. And he, he references it back to Genesis 1, that God created everything in six days. Now, <clears throat> there's a theology out there that has been around for quite a while, and that is that the six days of creation, Brittany, I'm still bringing it again, the six days of creation uh, are not uh, 24 literal periods of time. And they, they, get, they do this because they get caught up with the geologists and the scientists who just cannot accept the fact that the earth has only been here for 6,000 years. 
so they try to find a way to work it out that they can f account for all the time uh, to be make you know scientists to accept the Bible. Um, my way of thinking, if you're a scientist, I don't give a flip if you accept the Bible or not. Doesn't matter. If you if you want to stand in judgment of it, it'll stand in judgment of you, and that's okay. You figure it out with God. But uh, the Bible is very clear that man is on this earth for six thousand years. There are no prehistoric man. There is no, you know, there is no ages of evolution. Uh, man started in a garden six thousand years ago, thereabouts, and and uh, at the seven thousand year mark, the Lord is going to come back thereabouts depending on what calendar he's going by. But in Genesis chapter 1, we see the thing here, and he says uh, in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 5, the evening and morning were the first day. Then he says in verse 8, the evening and morning were the second day. Then he says up here in verse 13, the evening and morning were the third day. And then verse 19, the evening and morning were the fourth day. <coughs> and then um, verse 23, the evening and morning were the fifth day. And then uh, down here he says uh, in verse uh, 31, even when he was a sixth day. And when he gets to the verse chapter 2, here's what he says about the seventh day. He says, and on the seventh day, God ended his work which he made, and he rested the seventh day from all his work which he had made. Now this is your first reference in the Bible, and this would be the law of first mention. This is your first reference in the Bible to the millennial reign of Christ. And uh, notice the seventh day, God ended his work and he rests. <clears throat> now, for time and eternity, Christians who know nothing about the Bible always are perplexed why God needed to rest. You know, take a break, so to speak, uh, from all of his work. And of course, the rest here that he's talking about is not a rest that God was tired, so he had to take a break. The rest here represents the millennial rest, the thousand-year period that Christ uh, and the earth will be at rest. And, um, you know, uh, I want you to notice that uh, in every one of these so far, it was the evening and the morning was the first day, second day, third day, fourth day. Notice in chapter 2, you don't find an evening and a morning. That's because this is the day of the Lord. This day is an endless day. There is no end to this day. This day starts with the second coming, day of the Lord, run through a thousand years, that long day, Bible says one day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. And so we see that it runs for a thousand-year period, and then the day doesn't end there. What happened? What happened? There's something that where their building over here is going off still, so... I'm sorry? The alarm system is going off at random. It's nothing that they tripped. Oh, it was just going off by itself? Oh, okay, fine. If the fire guys come in, just everybody will just kumbaya and hold hands. Just. Or we could say, close that door. Put the, put the explosives away. We don't want anybody to see this bomb factory down here. <clears throat> so it lasts for a thousand years. It doesn't end, and then it moves right on into uh, eternity. And this is God's endless day. And that's why the model for it is in Genesis chapter 2. And it says there, And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested. Now look at verse 3. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in that he had rested from all the work which God created. 
Now, the word sanctify means set apart. So what he did is that when he got to this day, his work was finished. It's, a, it's, it's likened in Exodus chapter 20 to man doing his work for 6,000 years, and then the 7,000, the earth's going to be at rest. There'll be no more work, no more labor. Everything will be done. And uh, so he sets this day apart. He sanctifies it. He makes this day special. And to emphasize that point, all down through the Bible, he does everything then in multiples by sevens. Everything that God does, number seven becomes the perfect number in numerology. And almost everything that God does will be by sevens or by multiples of sevens. So uh, you want to you remember that and you want to... Um, you know, you want to realize that uh, the day of the Lord is a day that, uh, you know, is it goes beyond all of that. Now, <clears throat> over in Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verses 6 and 7, it, it says of the ingov... Uh, ingov- uh, let's get I'll look at it here. Let's pick it up in verse 6. Now, here's your order again, and this is another important passage if you don't have marked in your Bible. It says in 9.6, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. Now, you see the punctuation there at the end, the colon, and then it says, And the government shall be upon his shoulders. Then you have the punctuation again. Now, this is a, these two verses are prophetic verses that show you, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, colon, that's the first coming of Christ, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, that's the second coming of Christ, going into the millennium, colon, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So it shows you starting in the first coming of Christ, jumps completely over the church age, which it always does in the Old Testament, lands you right at the second coming of Christ where his government is established. And then verse 7 moves on into eternity of the increase of his government and peace. That'll be the millennial reign of Christ. There shall be no end. See, so there's no evening in the morning here. It's an eternal day. Upon the throne of David, David, as you'll see here in a little bit, sits on the throne with Christ during the millennium, uh, and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice for men's forth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, what you have here is the millennial reign of Christ will be God's government structure system. That government structure system is made up by two kingdoms. One is a physical kingdom, the other one is a spiritual kingdom. We teach the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And, you know, it can be a little bit confusing because um, throughout history of man, the kingdoms shift. And I, when we went through this, I laid it out very clearly. The kingdoms shift. There's a time when they're both here. Then there's a time when the kingdom of heaven is here, the kingdom of God is not. Then there's a time when neither one of them are here. Then there's a time when the kingdom of God is here and the kingdom of heaven is not. Then there's a time when neither one of them are here again. And then there's a time when they both show up again. And at the second coming of Christ, God's government going into the millennium is both kingdoms together, even though they're separate. The 
kingdom of heaven will be the literal kingdom that is given to the nation of Israel who gets the promised land that uh, was given to Abraham. The spiritual kingdom will be you and me, the kingdom of God, and we'll be spiritual beings with that. But both kingdoms are here in Christ. Both kingdoms were here in Adam, and he lost it, one left. Both were here in Christ, they rejected him, one left. Both will be here in the millennium. This time, neither one of them will leave. This is the government that uh, increases. So those are the fundamental things about the millennium that you want to understand. Now, when it comes to the millennium in theological circles, you're going to find that there's three avenues of teaching on it. And you need to be aware of this because you're going to run into this uh, quite often when you start talking to people. Um, you have what we call the premillennial approach to the millennium. You have what we call the postmillennial. And then you have what we call amillennial. Now, postmillennial means that. <clears throat> The world uh, gets better and better and better through social justice. That man keeps uh, he keeps uh, making the world a better place to live, and then when he gets to the world to a point, then Christ will come back and establish his kingdom based on man making it fit now for him to come back. The churches that believe this will be. Uh, <coughs> will be your Methodist, your Presbyterian. Uh, I'm sure by this stage of the game, most of your neo-evangelical churches probably believe this. Uh, I'm sure that by now most many Baptist churches are buying into it. And the longer you go without the relative truth of the Bible, the more these things pop up. Your Lutheran church, your Episcopalian church, um, this, is, this, this is why you have within these uh, movements, the social gospel. The social gospel is the design to clean man up, clean the earth up, so it's fit for Christ to come back. And of course, you know, post-millennialism is, 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 is a heresy. It's never going to happen. The other one is amillennialism, and that is the aspect that there is no literal return of Christ. It's a spiritual kingdom. And this will be your Jehovah Witnesses. This will be your uh, uh, Church of Christ, this will be um, your way out there cult groups. And they believe that uh, it's a spiritual kingdom that uh, never really manifests itself in a physical form. The premillennial return of Christ is the, is the standard uh, that is taught all the way through the Bible. Uh, everything in the Bible points to a premillennial return of Christ. That means that Christ comes back and, and cleans the world up and takes it by force. <clears throat> and then he establishes his, his kingdom, which you'll see here, the millennial reign of Christ. The premillennial return of Christ is the only uh, legitimate one you can trace through the Bible. The other two are just completely ridiculous. Um, when I find somebody who believes in the amillennialism or postmillennialism, uh, I know I'm dealing with somebody who has no clue about the Bible. He doesn't even have a beginning of understanding it. I, I don't know how a man could read the Bible with any kind of understanding and ever come to the post-millennial, amillennial position. And of course, these, are, these heresies are hatched out in, in great high theological circles where unsaved men sit around and want to take the kingdom from Christ 
And just like they've taken the Bible from the church and they become the final authority, they're not satisfied with that. They want to take the visible return of Christ out and they want to set the standard for when Christ comes back. That's all it is. And of course, um, so you'll want to remember those three. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8, <coughs> the millennial reign of Christ is called a new covenant. And it's a new covenant that he makes with the nation of Israel. In fact, most of chapter 8 deals with that. We won't go into it in any great depth, just so you know that, because there's a lot of other material we want to look at. But in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8, he talks about the new covenant that he established with Israel. That new covenant will be the millennial reign of Christ. Now, if you're turning over there and you don't have this, I just put a little note by that, you know, new covenant slash millennial reign of Christ. Just you get it done. It, 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 then it's done. You know, you think, well, I'll go do that this afternoon. No, you won't. No, you won't. You'll get a cheeseburger, get tired, and take a nap and forget about it. Put it in now. This is, this is just one of the rules you want to follow. When I give you something that is so minute yet so powerful, put it in there. Get it in while you're there. Go out of here today with 10 or 12 things in your Bible you didn't have before. So the new covenant is what he makes within the millennium to Israel, and I'm going to show you that in detail here in just a moment. <clears throat> now the next thing I want you to know about the millennium is that God has a millennial reign of Christ for three basic reasons. And you want to get these down. And uh, the first one is for Christ to... Uh, rightfully get all the kingdoms that are his. And you'll notice, if you remember, that in Matthew chapter 4, when the devil came to Christ to tempt him, um, one of the things that he said <clears throat> was that he would give him all the kingdoms of the earth if he would just bow down and worship him. And of course, <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> when you go over to Revelation chapter 11, you'll find that the uh, Christ does get the kingdoms. The Bible says in Revelation eleven fifteen that the kingdoms of, of, of the earth have become the kingdoms of his Christ. He gets them right there. So <clears throat> it's a thing where uh, the devil wanted him to accept those kingdoms in Matthew 4 because in Revelation 11, God gives those to him. And if he would have accepted those kingdoms, then he would have had to recognize that the devil was God. That was the whole plan behind it. <clears throat> and of course, he didn't. Uh, but uh, so the millennial reign of Christ, uh, for the first reason, is that Christ will get all the kingdoms of this earth that were promised to him. The second reason for it is that back in Genesis, God promised to Abraham <clears throat> that he would get the land that God has uh, for him. And that land grant is called the, uh, you know, Abraham, the land grant that was given to Abraham. And uh, that is uh, where all the 12 tribes get their inheritance within the land. They have never had that <clears throat> anywhere in history other than for the 40 years that Solomon reigned. Solomon reigned for 40 years, and during that short period of time, uh, Israel gets all the land that they were going to get in the millennium. And of course, knowing that, that's what makes Solomon's reign such an incredible picture of the millennial reign of Christ. If you want to study what it's going to be, study that up to a point. So, 
This will be the new covenant that God makes with them in Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 9. Then the third reason for it is for you and I to get our millennial inheritance. <clears throat> I've told you many before um, that when you take a life of somebody who's 70 years old, you start whittling it down to all the things that we do, uh, the time we waste in a 70-year lifespan. We probably have 15 or 20 years that you can really serve the Lord with. I mean, you, it's like you sleep a third of your life, you eat six or seven years of your life. By the time you whittle it down, out of 70 years, you don't have a long time. And God says, if you give me the time that you do have, say it's 20 years, you give me 20 years of dedicated work down here, when I come and I govern my kingdom, I'm going to reward you with a thousand years of, of doing everything. It's like somebody needing to borrow $20 and they don't, they don't have any money, but they just won the lottery and they're going to get the money in the morning and they say to you, look, I need to get gas in my car. You give me $20 and tomorrow I'll give you $1,000. And you give them the $20 because they need it. And then the next day, sure enough, you get your $1,000. All right. God says, I need your 20 years. I need it now. You give me your 20 years here, I'll give you 1,000 years tomorrow when I show up. Just that simple. Now, <clears throat> the greatest chapters in the Bible that lay out the millennium will be found in the book of Ezekiel. And I want to walk you through this. I would suggest that um, if you don't have Clarence Larkin's book on dispensational truth, that you get that book. Um, he probably does the best job of anybody I've ever seen. And I say that because there isn't any material on the millennium out there. Most of you of it you find is totally, ridiculously stupid. It has nothing to do with anything relative to the real world of millennium or the Bible. Uh, first of all, there's hardly anything on it because nobody knows anything about it. The only other book that I ever knew was out there was a book by the name of a guy by the name of John Wolverd. And he wrote a book on the millennium uh, years and years ago. And it was probably one of the most worthless books you could ever get your hands on. Ruckman's material on it is exceptional. <coughs> the problem is he doesn't have one place where you can go. Um, you've got to kind of get all the information. Um, here, there, and everywhere, and, and all the stuff that he teaches. I would suggest that probably the best source for him for that would be in his commentary on the book of Revelation, um, and in Revelation chapter 20, because that, that deals with the millennium. Uh, he doesn't have a book out on Isaiah at this point. Uh, years ago, when I uh, <coughs> was... Uh, you know, trying to get my Bible together, uh, I found a source that had uh, all of his material, almost without doubt, this was back in the 70s now, uh, all of his material, uh, all, all the books of the Bible almost without exception. And uh, they were taken from lectures that he did, a lot of it was taken from his institute, and this is stuff that was done back in the 50s and the 60s. I mean, this was really good stuff. <clears throat> and uh, it was all on cassette. And I remember that Isaiah was five or six volumes uh, and tapes, and it equated to uh, 70, 70, 90 minute tapes. 
<clears throat> and he really, really laid out the millennium. Between him and Larkin, um, that's really where I, I learned the aspect of the millennium. But he doesn't have that. <clears throat> and I remember another little tape that he did uh, that I don't know where he was teaching it. Um, and this was 30, 35 years ago. That he had a, just a single tape on, on the millennial reign of Christ, which was just, just everything you could ever want. And uh, that those things aren't available today. I still have them on cassette, but uh, you just don't find that stuff today. And uh, there was a place down in Exene, Ohio, a little church called Charity Baptist Church, and a guy by the name of Greg Estep that uh, had all that material. And, uh, you know, so <laughs> it's hard to find a lot of good material. I don't mean this in an egotistical way, but this will probably be your best source. Uh, and then I would get Larkin, because Larkin, he draws it out. He draws out every aspect of it. And, and believe it or not, you know, if you want to look at my Bible, what we're done here, I have taken every, everything that he drew out and drew out in my Bible in the corresponding chapter in the book of Ezekiel. I said Isaiah, it's Ezekiel. And uh, I laid everything out and drew it out so I would have it ready reference. He does a tremendous job on it, probably the best I've ever seen uh, as far as illustrating it all and writing it out so you can, you can read it. You know, it's like many things you read in the Bible, it's one thing to read it, but then you got to form your own picture of it. And sometimes the picture in your mind, based on the information, isn't exactly what it is. It's always good to have somebody draw it out for you as it is to read the material. And that's what Larkin does. And uh, I could show you exactly what you need to do uh, in that. It's an incredible deal. But <clears throat> the book of Ezekiel is the book that uh, you want to you get to. And Ezekiel is a, an incredible book that uh, details out. And I want to show you how, how the book lays out here. The book of Ezekiel all deals with the tribulation period, second coming of Christ, and then ends with the millennium. It's an incredible book. And in the, in the first 39 chapters, it basically deals with the tribulation period going back and forth. Um, in chapter 1 through chapter 24, um, he deals with the destruction and the judgment of the nation of Israel. Now, historically, Ezekiel is a captivity book. It's written during the captivity. So he's writing about what Shennacherib from the north and Nebuchadnezzar from the south, the damage they do and the destruction they bring in. But prophetically, we know that those two guys are two types of the Antichrist. So prophetically, it's, it's, it's the tribulation period. So you want to put that note, honestly, I would put that uh, at the top of every chapter um, in the first 24 chapters, that it's a picture, uh, the destruction and the judgment of Israel and the tribulation. I, I just would do that. Chapters 24 or 25 up to chapter 35, um, deals with the destruction of the Gentile nations and their judgment. Again, historically, that'll be God coming down and judging Babylon, judging Shennacherib, Assyria. But prophetically, it's dealing with the Gentile nations and their judgment 
at the second coming of Christ or in the tribulation period in the second coming of Christ. Then we come to chapter 36. Now we start to get interesting. And this goes to show you how that everything in your Bible follows the premillennial approach. Everything. Even I could take you and show you the order of the books of the Bible follow a premillennial approach. Now we come into Ezekiel chapter 36. And in chapter 36, we begin to see uh, God's hand turning and we see the restoration of the beginning of the restoration of the nation of Israel. And uh, chapter 36, um, if you look at chapter 36, verse 24, uh, it says, And I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and a new heart will I also give you, and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Now that, if you don't have this note in your Bible here, this is the new covenant of, of Hebrews chapter 8 right here. You want to put that right in there. That is, this is the new covenant right here. And now get this in alongside of this, because now we're beginning to see where he says in verse 24, I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries, and I will bring you into your own land. Now, we know that historically, that's a prophetic of the first coming of Christ. But also prophetically, this will be the second coming of Christ. And verse 24, the gathering from all the countries will be in our time frame, 1918, World War I, 1948, or 1943 to 45, World War II, and in 1948, when he become a nation. And then uh, it comes from, it, it, it just goes from there. And here again, verse 24 is the regathering of Israel. And then verse 25 jumps right into the millennium. It jumps over the tribulation, goes right into the millennium. Then I'll sprinkle clean water on you, give you a new heart. So you want to see that. And you want to put in there, uh, the the re um, uh, the recalling of Israel or regathering of Israel, 1918, uh, 1948, uh, you know, and then verse 25, the second coming and and the millennium, and all this will deal with the uh, the beginning of the restoration. Then we move in chapter 37, and you're following the progression here. In chapter 37, we have the story of the valley of the dry bones. And, uh, you know, the again, chapter 37 will be the uh, re restoration of the nation of Israel. Well, chapter 37 is the regathering. Chapter 30, or 36 is the regathering. Chapter 37 is the, um, is the uh, rebuilding of the nation of Israel, the restructuring of Israel. And, of course, it's built around uh, the old uh, the old spiritual song um, that was uh, sang for years and years and years is based on uh, them bones, them bones, them dry bones. And of course, that's a spiritual song that um, is built on Ezekiel 37. And the valley of dry bones is the nation of Israel who is very dry and dead. And then it says in verse 5, Thus saith the Lord God 
unto these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. So, <clears throat> there you have it, that we begin to see that this is Israel coming back to life. And uh, she, she becomes, uh, look at verse 11, in case you had any doubt about it. And you need to mark these verses. Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. I mean, I'm getting better than that. And again, over there in verse 21, he says unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whether they be gone, and gather them on every side, and bring them into their own land. Again, verse 21, 1918, verse 22, uh, And I will make them one nation, 1948. And uh, then uh, uh, on the mountains of Israel, notice the punctuation, semicolon, bang. And one king shall be their king, right into the millennium. Jumps right over the tribulation period. So all this is dealing with all of this stuff. Chapter 38. Chapter 38 and chapter 39 deals with the tribulation period. <clears throat> and uh, it deals with it under the concept of Gog and Magog and all the nations that are going to come up against the nation of Israel during the tribulation period. And uh, it talks about the countries from the north that come down. Um, it talks about uh, Israel being attacked. And, uh, and all of this is in chapter 38 and 39. We won't spend time going through all of it, all of it. But uh, in chapter 39, uh, you will you will come down to the end of the tribulation and uh, and the end of the Antichrist. Look at 39.1. Therefore, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against Odi Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And I will turn back and leave uh, but the sixth part of thee and will cause thee to come up from the north parts and I will bring, upon thee, uh, bring thee upon the mountains of Israel. And then I will smite the bow out of thy left hand, and I will cause thy arrows to fall out of thy right hand. Now notice this is a reference to the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 6, who is a rider with a bow in his hands. And of course, there he doesn't have any arrows, but when he goes against the nation of Israel three years later, he, he, he's got, and he's got the arrow. Uh, so this is what you got. And, of course, they all get destroyed. And uh, notice at verse 12 of chapter 39, <coughs> uh, verse 11, And it shall come to pass in that day that I will give unto Gog a place there of, gra of graves in Israel in the valley of passengers on the east of the sea, and I shall stop the noses of the passengers, and they shall bury Gog and all his multitude, and they shall call it the valley of of uh, uh, Ham and Gog. That means a multitude of, 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 of Gog. And then look in the next verse, and seven months shall the house of Israel be bearing of them that they may cleanse the land. So this is a reference after the battle and people are traveling through the land and the stench from the dead bodies, over <coughs> 200 million, uh, are so bad that it takes them seven months to bury all of the dead. And uh, 
So this is this is all dealing with the and we've, we've followed it right through now. We, we, we started in our time frame, 1918, 1900, at the Zionist movement, up through Israel becoming a nation, up through uh, God regathering all them and bringing them back into the land. Now we're at a place where um, we move into the tribulation period, uh, and now we've moved into the place where God has come back, wiped out the Antichrist at the second coming. Now we're ready to start chapter 40. Chapter 40 through 48 in the book of Ezekiel are the eight greatest chapters anywhere in your Bible on the millennial reign of Christ. No place anywhere in the Bible is there any more information than given in these eight chapters. And there are eight chapters because where seven in your Bible is a number of perfection, eight in your Bible is a number of new beginnings. So there's eight chapters on this because this is the new beginning, a new beginning for earth, new beginning for Israel, new beginning for the church, new beginning for everybody. And uh, in chapter 48, um, all the aspects of Christ's kingdom uh, being established is now uh, laid out. So um, I'm, I'm not going to go into great detail on these. Um, this is where uh, Ruckman's, uh, and I said Isaiah a while back, I met Ezekiel. This is where Ruckman's cassette tapes on, on Ezekiel were just everything you could ever want. I think, uh, you know, on, uh, uh, on chapter 40 through chapter 48, there was like 32 tapes just on that section. And, uh, and I, you know, what I did with everything that I got back then, I'd sit down four or five hours at a time and uh, I would just go through my Bible and I would catch every detail that everything you said. And I, that's what makes my study Bible. I could actually go to any book in the Bible and, and teach any book of the Bible. You gave, if I was someplace and somebody said, Bob, uh, you're preaching tonight, what are you preaching on? And I said, well, I'm gonna preach on the, um, heaven, you know, preach on whatever. And they said, well, we, we need to change in plans. Um, we want you to teach the book of Deuteronomy. We want you to, and you got 30 seconds to get it ready. I just turn over the book of Deuteronomy and be ready to go. You want Leviticus? Fine. You want Judges? Fine. You want Joshua? Fine. First, second Samuel? Let's do it. You want Revelation? Anything? And the only reason I can do that, because I spent the time laying out those books of the Bible, and I have in my study Bible, which needs to be your study Bible, everything at my fingertips. That Bible says, preach the word. Be, be, be instant, in season and out of season. You know what in season is? That's when you prepared something. You know what out of season is? When you prepared something and they change it on you. Be able to just get in there and do it. You have got to become so familiar with the Bible that you know it better than anything else on this planet. That you don't have to, I, I told you last week, and I'm, I'm not saying this to make myself look like I, I know the Bible. I could write volumes of what I don't know. But I'm trying to get you to see the point of studying a study Bible. Last week I was going to do, last time we were together I was going to do the Millennium. <clears throat> and I, I had got it all, my material all organized and I wanted to do it. And when I got here, when I got here and I started, and I was teaching you. I mean, I had already started. I didn't get here and have 20. When I started teaching and I started walking you back through everything, I saw I forgot the second coming of Christ. 
well, how do you move on into the millennium from the tribulation without the second coming? That's a major piece of the puzzle. But I'm already teaching you. I'm going you up. And suddenly I said, oops, doggone it. How in, I'm just thinking to myself, how did I miss that? But in the same breath, I said, all right, well, I'll just have that ready for next time. And I taught you for two hours or so on the second coming. Why? Because the material's there. You've got to set your study Bible up that when any situation you're in, you've got what you need. And in time, you'll learn to on, you use your, your blank pieces of paper to, like I told you, to do everything you need to do to have those cheat sheets in your Bible about any subject in the Bible, that they're ready to go. Everything is there. You don't have to write it all out. You get it organized so everything you put down will jog your memory to something you do know. And you just rearrange it and you, you walk through it. And, and that's what you've got to do with your Bible. And, you know, I know a lot of it you can't get anymore. So, you know, I try to give it to you off of where I got it. And, uh, and I'll be honest with you. Uh, you know, I, I personally think that my teaching and laying it out to you was a lot easier to follow than Ruckman's was. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> this was tough sometimes. You know, and, and listening to his, you know, I would, he would get teaching for a while, and then he'd get telling a story about catching shark or sand dab done at the... And I just put the fast forward on and go through it. He's still talking about it. Moving a little forward. Now he's got six mullets in his net. I just keep moving forward when he picked up the verse again. You don't have to do that with me. I just led you out to it. And I try to break it down for you as easy as I can because that's what I had to do for me to get it. But you, if you're going to ever get the Bible down, you're going to have to come up with a system in your own Bible that gives you the Bible. And, um, you know, you can't go to heaven without a red pencil. You just can't. And you've got to be able to organize that material so it, that's your fingertips. You want to be at the place in your life where any subject in the Bible, bar none, you could be ready in 15 seconds or less to teach it and go on all day long if that's what you had to do. And it, you come to the place in your, and when you, and you, you don't do it because you're so smart. You don't do it because you memorize everything. You don't do it because you have this incredible ability to just absolve great portions in the Bible. You have the ability because you cheat. You take all that material and put it in a cheat sheet, your cliff notes of the Bible. That's how you do it. You find you a system that will give you the information without having to get all of the information. you got to do that. So when we get into Ezekiel chapter 40, now we start... Uh, these, uh, these, these, these eight chapters, and each one of them will deal uh, with something that is is different. And uh, chapter forty, uh, you pick it up in verse two. I'm just going to give you the outline of each one. Maybe make a few references, but you know you'll have to figure it out on yourself. And I'll help you with it. If you guys have got Clarence Larkin's book, let me know. Bring it in. I'll show you what you need to do. Uh, before you do it, I'll show you my Bible so you see how I did it. Not that mine's the model for it, but it works for me. You have to come up with your own, but at least you get an idea. He says in chapter 40, verse 2, In the visions of God brought to me in the land of Israel and set me upon a very high mountain by which uh, there was a frame of a city on the south. And he brought me hither, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like unto the appearance of brass, <clears throat> and with him a line of flax in his hand, 
and a measuring reed, he stood at the gate. And what happens as you go down through here is he starts to give you an overall overview of the millennial temple that's going to be on the earth at the second coming of Christ. Now that's the note you need to put. Let me break it down even simpler for you. Put this right by chapter 40. Chapter 40, uh, and then Mark verses 2 and 3. Uh, chapter 40 is a overview of the millennial temple that's going to be on this earth uh, forever when Christ comes back. And for, chapter 40 is the overview, the measurements. It doesn't get into the specific. That gets on as we move on through the chapters here. So just put that down first. And if you notice in verse 9, verse 10, and you probably if you have a yellow pencil, you can do this right now. Look at verse, uh, uh, we'll just do it. Uh, look at verse 5. Uh, underline or make in yellow uh, a measuring read. And then uh, look at verse 6. Uh, mark in yellow, measured. Uh, look in verse 8, uh, measured. Look in verse 9, measured. Then in verse 10, measured. Uh, verse 11, measured. Verse 13, measured. And, you know, uh, verse uh, 23, measured. Verse 24, measured. Verse 24, twice measured. Uh, verse 27, measured. Verse 28, measured. Uh, verse uh, 29, measured. Uh, verse 32, measured. Verse 33, measured. Verse 34, measured. Two there, measured, measured. <laughs> uh, and uh, you, you know why I do that? I mean, I know you're all masters of the obvious. You know why I do that? All I have to do is look at that chapter and know that he's measuring something. And he's measuring the dimensions of the millennial temple. That's what chapter 40 is about. Now, I don't have all of that in there. I just have the measured mark. Hello, and I know what I'm dealing with. And then the title at the beginning of the chapter. That's what you need to do in every one of these. And now in chapter 41, goes along with chapter 40. And uh, he now begins to uh, talk about the ornaments of the temple. But he's all dealing with the detailed description. And he, he's not... He's not getting into all of the different details yet. He's just laying out the overall uh, composite of it, the measurements, the overall description of it. So by chapter 41, you want to put the description of the temple continued with emphasis on the ornaments of the temple. That's what you want to put. When you get into chapter 42, he now begins to focus on the tabernacle, and that's going to be within the temple. And uh, this, is a, this is a great thing here. And uh, all of this material here uh, in Ezekiel um, is, uh, is a picture of, of the uh, beginning, the inner workings of it. And uh, notice it says in verse 3 that it's three stories. I don't have time to get into all of that this morning, but the tabernacle is a type of the universe. Just like you got three heavens, the tabernacle had three stories to it. And uh, they match up to the three heavens. And, of course, uh, all this is, is laid out for you here. And uh, 
in your Bible, you'll have uh, all the types of the universe. Uh, the ark is a type of the universe. So it has three levels. The temple is a type of the universe. It has three levels. The tabernacle had three sections to it. And of course, uh, there's three heavens in the universe. First heaven, second heaven, third heaven. So all this stuff is, is this is where it starts to get really in-depth, but you don't have to worry about that today. In chapter 43, we start to see the layout of the, uh, of the eastern gate. And he says in 43.2, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east, and the voice was like a noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. Now this is God coming into that temple. Notice he's coming from the east. In a few moments, we're going to look at the eastern gate in particular. And, uh, you know, all this is dealing with Christ entering into the temple. And it says in verse 4, And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate uh, whose prospect is toward the east. That'll be the famed eastern gate. And uh, the eastern gate, look at verse 7. And he said unto me, Son of man, the place of my throne. Now, let me take you back to Ezekiel 1 here. And this will maybe start to put some stuff together for you, hope. Look at Ezekiel chapter 1. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 1, pick, and looking at verse 4, you have a whirlwind coming out of the north, a great cloud, fire floating in itself. You've got four creatures. And these four creatures are moving along here, and they give the appearance of wheels. And the Bible says here, uh, verse 16, a wheel within the middle of the wheel. Now, this has led many, many people who um, don't anything about the Bible, uh, you know, uh, when von Deineken, years and years ago, wrote his book, Chariots of the, uh, Chariot of the, Chariots of the Gods, um, he used Ezekiel chapter 1 as, as, a, as the, a, a bona fide case of an unidentified flying object. Uh, what it, is, it is a flying object, but it is, it's identified in the Bible. And uh, so he didn't know what he was dealing with. He spawned a whole bunch of people who... Uh, want to believe in UFOs in the sense of UFOs and so they they look at these places in Ezekiel as stupid idiotic primitive man seeing a higher life form flying around in the UFOs and then writing about it not knowing what they see and or understanding what they really are so we get the glimpse of it here when he says it was a wheel and then he interprets what the guy really saw just crap what you have in Ezekiel chapter 1 is a picture of the second coming of Christ. And this is them bringing in the throne uh, that we're reading about in Ezekiel chapter 43. These four, these four creatures here are four cherubim. And these four cherubim uh, are represented around the throne of God. There's one on each corner of the throne there used to be a fifth one who was over the covering of the throne, but he fell. Fifth cherub, 
Lucifer. And so this is what you have. Now, along with that, let's get our second UFO chapter in, in Ezekiel, and that'll be chapter 10. Now here again, this is Ezekiel seeing this prophetic vision. And notice it's talking about the cherub again. Uh, but this is, this is the companion passage to chapter 1. But look what it says here, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, there appeared over them as a sapphire stone, here it comes, as appearance and likeness of a throne. So these cherub are connected with the throne of God, and they're in chapter 1 of Ezekiel, if you want to put a note by it, and chapter 10, I would make the reference back to Ezekiel chapter 43, and I'd simply put there so you would have the context that these are the four cherubs bringing in the throne of God slash the glory of God into the millennial temple at the beginning of the millennium. That's what I'd put. I'd give you a minute to do that. That's exactly what I'd put. Because that's, and that gives you a context. You, can, you may not understand everything about it, but you know what you got. You know, I can usually figure out the intimate details of something later on if I just get the overall concept of it. And that's what I'm trying to give you right now. We'll put the details to it as we go through. Um, oh, ma'am, my wallet's in my pocket. Let me get it out. Oh, she got a mask on. I thought she was robbing us. Don't go to the bank like that. Oh, you want me to say it again? Okay. Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10 is a picture of the four cherubim bringing in the throne of God and the glory of God at the beginning of the millennium. See Ezekiel chapter 43. And then I would, you know, um, put that by chapter 1 and chapter 10. And this is the prophetic, him seeing prophetically what's going to happen at the millennium. And so in the opening books of the Bible here, you have an actual picture of that. And then when you get into Ezekiel 43, then you connect it back. This is what you have. You betcha. And that's why you have... In 43.2, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel came in from the way of the east. That's what they're doing. They're bringing in the throne from the east. Christ comes in that way. And the glory of the Lord, verse 4, came into the house by the gate of the east. And then look at verse 7. And he said unto me, Son of man, the place of my throne. There it is. You want to run that back to Ezekiel chapter 10. And I think it also, if I've got it right here, hang on a minute. Yeah, in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 26, it also makes a reference to his throne. So you want to put both of those in there. So that's chapter 43. Now in chapter 44... Chapter 44 deals with the, the gate and the throne of the prince. 
and look at uh, look at Ezekiel thirty four. You want to want this reference too. Ezekiel 34. Twenty-four. And I, the Lord, will be their God. This is talking about the millennium. And my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken it. So, in the millennium, the prince is David. And you want to put that verse up around verse three. Well, you can put it at, at the beginning of forty-four. The gate for the prince, and the prince is David, based on uh, Ezekiel thirty-four twenty-four. And, of course, in the millennium, uh, Christ is sitting on the throne, and David sits uh, at his right hand on the right side. And, of course, this is why it said, and I told you we would get to it in a moment, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, of the increase of his government of peace, there should be no end, or the throne of David. Remember that? Put that in there. David's throne in the millennium is on the right hand of Christ's throne, and they sit there together. Now, the eastern gate, well, I'd, I'd put this note in here. You can put it here in the last place. doesn't matter. I have it here. Um, but you could put it in 43, 1 through 4, if you wanted to. Now, the eastern gate has been one of the most written about, talked about, probably the most associated. Uh, and if anybody knows anything about Christ's return, they probably know something about the eastern gate. And uh, the eastern gate faces uh, the Mount of Olives. And uh, it is where Christ, when he comes back at the second coming of Christ, he comes and lands after he comes up the route of the second coming, which I, I've already given you. He comes in across Jordan and he, he comes to the Mount of Olives. He steps off the Mount of Olives, off the horse onto the Mount of Olives, and he goes through the eastern gate, and he sets up his throne. And all this is going on at the same time. So just so you know, all this is, it, it's all happening in conjunction with his coming. And he walks through the eastern gate, and then he sets down on the throne. Now the eastern gate has been as I said, the source of many songs. I will meet you in the morning just inside the Eastern Gate. Remember that one? Uh, Eastern Gate is something that um, has been talked about, written about. Everybody understands prophetically where it's at. I think the reason why it, it's probably so important that not only is it the force of face of prophecy in the Second Coming, but it's always been a, a controversial point in history. In 1543, um, a Turk by the name of Suleiman, and his name was Suleiman the Magnificent, um, he had taken Jerusalem. And being a Muslim, he did not believe in anything with the Bible or Christianity. 
And so what he, what he was going to do to show his disdain for Christianity and for Christ is that he knew the prophecy that Christ was going to come through the eastern gate. So he made his proclamation that he was going to go through the eastern gate and then he was going to be the ruler over all of the land of Palestine, Israel. And that was what he had proclaimed that he was going to do. The story goes, and it's a true story, the story goes that that night uh, he had a dream that he went through the eastern gate and God came down and killed him. He was so livid about that dream that it was true and so paranoid and afraid that instead of going through the eastern gate, he walled it up with bricks that he would not be tempted to go through it, nor could anyone else go through it. If you would go to the Holy Land today, you would see that the Eastern Gate is still bricked up. It was bricked up in 1543 by Suleiman the Magnificent and has been that way uh, ever since. And what he did was he ensured by doing that that no one would go through that gate until the Lord Jesus Christ came back and he goes through it to fulfill the prophecy of Ezekiel 43 and 44. Now that's pretty widespread, wide knowledge, and that's why probably the Eastern Gate is something that uh, um, you know uh, most people know about it based on that, and that is a historically uh, bona fide truth. You can Google it and, and find the story of it, and uh, you may not get all of the details on Google, but you'll get you know you'll get basically what I just told you. So the Eastern Gate is, is key because um, it follows the fundamental outline of the Bible that in the Bible all good moves uh, that are of God in the Bible are from east to west. And you'll find that, that that's just one of those things that is a, is a very unknown element in the Bible with most people. Every move in the Bible from east to west will be a good move. Every move in the Bible from west to east will be a bad move. And it's just one of those things that shows you uh, that you can stay on track. Back in Genesis 1, the Bible says the Spirit of God <clears throat> moved upon the face of the waters. And when the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, uh, it never stops moving. And in Genesis chapter 1, the Holy Spirit of God filed his flight plan of where he was going to go. And the book of Ecclesiastes tells you that, uh, that it's moving. What people cannot figure out is where it's moving and where it's at today. And you'll find that the Holy Spirit of God, when he filed that flight plan, he moves east to west. Uh, he moved from, uh, he moved from uh, uh, the Middle East up into uh, the east and, and west, or excuse me, west uh, into Europe, and then from Europe west over into America, uh, when I talk about the seven great awakenings that come up through America, it moves east to west. And you'll find that all revivals move east to west. The Spirit of God moved east to west. When Adam and Eve uh, went into the garden, they went in east to west. When they were expelled from the garden, they went from east uh, west to east. Uh, when a high priest went into the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, to make the sacrifice, he goes from east to west. And Horace Greeley just kind of coined the phrase back in the 1800s when he said, Go west, young man. Uh, but that's the, 
that's the that's the that's the history behind the eastern gate. Christ comes from the east gate, and then he goes into and establishes the millennial reign of Christ. So that will be Ezekiel chapter uh, 44. Now, coming into chapter 45, and here's where I have my, my second little diagram. My first little diagram is at 42. Here's where I have my, and this is based on Clarence Larkin. In chapter uh, 45, uh, we begin to deal with the, the Lord's portion of the land. Now, every tribe gets a portion of the land. But the Lord gets his portion too. And his portion will be uh, right in the middle of this whole aspect. And uh, it's uh, the Levites have their portion, the 12 tribes have their portion, but the Lord has his portion. And the Lord's portion, when you find it here in uh, 45 and other places throughout here, will be called the Holy Oblation. Now, that's a very important term to understand. It just simply means it's nothing spooky about it or simple spiritual about it. The holy oblation will be the Lord's portion within the tabernacle that everything in the millennium, his throne, David's throne, and everything is going to operate from. So it's called the holy portion or the holy oblation. And Larkin, Larkin, uh, in my first, in my first deal here, my first little deal, I have a. This is what Larkin does. He gives you a real close look at the holy oblation, and he details out all the chambers. He details out the sanctuary, everything. Really, a close shot where you can see it. So I have that written out here, and when you get into chapter forty-five, then he gives you a satellite view of it, nah, bird's eye view of it. And now you have the where the holy oblation is detailed out on page this way. Now here it's very small and you have the outlying lands and everything that goes along with it that you can see it. And it puts it into a perspective for you. And it's a thing where um, uh, it, it just it's really invaluable to be able to see that and understand that. So, you know, Larkin does a Larkin does a better job than anybody I've ever seen. I've never even seen Ruckman ever do it that way. Probably Ruckman probably got it from him because he lived around the 1900s. But if you want something on the millennium that and 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 you know, for a long, long, long time in my life, this is like 35 years ago. You know, I did everything else in the Bible, but I knew at some point I was going to have to get down to millennium. So I just sat down one day. Uh, it took me about eight, nine hours to do it, and I got Larkin's book, got Ruckman's material that he had, and I just went through these eight chapters, and I just nailed it down. And I just looked at his book, copied it right, and put it in mind where I needed to, and what it does, it gives you, again, when I go to 46 and 47, boom, there it is. It's right there for me. I can see it. I understand it, and I know what I'm dealing with. And I have everything correspondingly, like when he does the drawing, he puts the Bible references right next to everything in Ezekiel. I did too. So I have everything that he's got. And, uh, you know, it's just a, it's a great way to do that. So chapter 45 deals with the, the, the Lord's portion, uh, which is known as the holy portion or 
the Holy Oblation. The Holy Oblation in particular will be dealing with the sanctuary and the throne where the, uh, uh, the priest portion or the, the Lord's portion, the holy portion, will deal with that section of land that is around it. And the river of life we'll talk about in a minute. It comes out of that throne and it's all part of that. When you get into chapter 46, chapter 46 is going to be the, the, the worship process that the people are going to do uh, to the Lord uh, and to the Holy Oblation. And you want to put that right at the beginning of chapter 46. And you'll find that uh, if you look at verse 3, it says, Likewise the people of the land shall worship at the door of this gate before the Lord in the Sabbath and in the new moons. And the burnt offerings that the prince shall offer unto the Lord in the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish. The thing that I want you to notice in every commentary on the millennium just goes into defibrillation when it comes to this passage. You see again that in the millennium that you have Sabbath worship, you have offerings, and um, everything looks like it is back in the Old Testament. But remember now, this is a new covenant. And the difference is this. In the Old Testament, when they kept the Sabbath and the new moon and the sacrifices, it was for Israel's atonement. Israel's atonement was completed at the second coming of Christ. So the Sabbath, the offerings, the new moons, and all of these things are not to get people saved, but in a commemoration of the second coming of Christ by which they did get saved. Follow what I'm saying? Now, let me show you this. This is, this is a real piece of your puzzle here. This is, again, I told you, this is a big deal. I'll show you this. I guarantee you. Ah, never mind, I ain't going to say it. I'm tired of saying it. I'm tired of always being the only one to write Colossians chapter 2. Now, I've read you this before, but I've, it'll make, it'll, the lights will come on now. And you'll want to mark this in your Bible. Your lights are about to get switched on here. Now, we know Colossians 2 is dealing with Christ's death on the cross, taking out the Old Testament in our world. Now watch. Uh, verse 14. Colossians 2.14. This is the great chapter on spiritual circumcision. Blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Now the ordinances were the Old Testament. Okay? They're gone now. Now watch and have spoiled principalities and powers, that's the devil and his crowd, and made a show of them openly, triumphing him, uh, over them in it. Verse 16. Let no man therefore judge you, talking to the church, let no man therefore judge you in meat, meat offerings, drink, drink offerings, or in respect to a holy day, uh, or a new moon, or of the Sabbath. See? In the church, we're done with those. Now watch. Here it comes. 
which are, uh, which are a shadow of things to come. See that? They're going to be back in effect in the millennium. Look what he says. That's a semicolon, which are a shadow of things to come, semicolon, but the body is of Christ. He's saying not now. Well, that's a great verse that shows you that the church is not under these things, but they're coming back into effect again in the millennium. You couldn't get three preachers in this city to explain that to you. I ain't kidding you. I, I, I'm, not, I'm just telling you the truth. It is, they, when it comes to these things, they just all go into cardiac arrest. There's just absolutely uh, no concept of what you've got here. So you want to get those verses correspondingly back and forth. And for your own understanding, and if you ever have to answer anybody's questions about the millennium. So chapter 46 is the worship of the people, and we see that the, the and I would mark verses 3 and 4, and that's where I would put my Colossians 2. Um, you know, I'd put all that right in there, so it's right at your fingertips. And I would put there that the difference between the sacrifices and the holy days in the Old Testament was for the Israel's atonement, but that was all fulfilled at the second coming, so now they do it as a uh, memorial or a commemorative of when Christ came back. It looks like that throughout eternity, the thing that we'll look back to um, will be the second coming of Christ. And that makes a lot of sense, because right now in the church age, what we look back to is the first coming of Christ. But when it, That's for us. But when we become like Christ and we get into eternity, it won't be about us anymore, because we will be Christ. So Israel will be in their natural bodies. So just like now in our natural bodies, we look back at the first coming. When they're in their natural bodies, they'll look back to the second coming. See how it works? It's just that simple. Not complicated. Now chapter 47 Yes. Is that like communion? Like we do that to remember Christ? Yes, it would be. It would be. Except communion is something that is given to the church. Um, Israel had that those back in the Old Testament. She just reinstates them. But it's the same mindset. It's a commemorative of Christ's death. Yeah, same concept. Just not the same in its format. But yeah, same idea behind it. Absolutely. Okay. Um, Now, in chapter 47, chapter 47 deals with the river of the uh, river that comes out of the Holy Oblation, which is called the River of the Sanctuary. Now, the River of the Sanctuary in the millennium, here's what it happens. And when you look at Larkin's book, you'll see it. It's pretty clear. And you, you put it into your Bible. You'll, when I have my written in here, I have that. Uh, <coughs> What you have is that you have the throne of God within the Holy Oblation. The Holy Oblation sits within the Lord's portion and, and then within the priest portion. It's across, right across where Jerusalem is. And then the tribes get divided up on either side of that. So what happens is this, that in the millennium, this river of the sanctuary um, comes out of the throne of God. It runs down south into the Dead Sea. And this is where the dead seed now, which is dead now, becomes alive. Then, in the chapter 47, it will tell you that wherever that 
it moves out of the out of the out of the Dead Sea, goes you might guess it to the west into the Mediterranean, and then the Bible says wherever that river goes, it heals everything and brings life to everything. So now obviously that water there is in the Bible is a picture of the Word of God. Now in chapter 47, the story here, and I would do you a great injustice if I didn't show you this, uh, the story here is about somebody measuring um, measuring in uh, this, this river. And they're moving out into the river to measure it. And what you have here in a practical application, and I've preached this before, it's been a long time, uh, but what you have here in chapter 47 is one of the is one of the greatest inspirational pictures of how you grow spiritually in the Word of God. And if you look here, it says, Then, verse 2, Then brought he me out of the way of the north gate, or, excuse me, the gate northward, and led me about into the utter gate uh, by the way that looketh eastward, and behold, there ran water out on the right side. Now that's a picture of when Christ was crucified, when they put the spear in his side, what came out? Water and blood. And his spear was on the right side, see? The blood was a picture of your... Uh, Christ dying for you, the water was a picture of the Word of God. So here you have the water coming out of the throne because the blood was shed. No blood here, blood's been shed. See how that works? That's incredible. All right, here we go. And when the man that had the line in his hand went eastward, he measured a thousand cubits, and he brought me through the waters, and the waters were to the ankles. Now what is a picture here of your spiritual growth and what you should go through in a natural process uh, with the water being a picture of the Word of God and you getting into the Word of God. Notice it goes through a couple of stages. Uh, the first stage here is to the ankles. And ankles will always be, in a physical world, the ankles will always be your key to walking. You sprain your ankle, you can't walk. Spiritually speaking, where you begin to first get saved and you begin to get discipleship, just basically getting into the water, you're just getting into your ankles, and what you're doing is strengthening what is going to carry you through your walk, and that is your ankles. Now, this is where a lot of God's people never go past. You know why? They sprain their ankle, and they quit going. Oh, it's an incredible message. You, some of you will steal it, and you will use it, and that's okay. I stole it too. It's all right. When the Bible says, thou shalt not steal, it's not talking about sermons. So the first thing you see, to the ankles. And then um, it says, and again, he measured, and he brought me through the waters, and the water were to the knees. Now he's making progress. He went from the ankles to the knees. Now in your spiritual growth, walking, wading into the water, your knees is where you come to the place of commitment because the Bible says in Philippians that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So this is where after you get in and you get to your ankles and you start to walk, you get to the place of real commitment. 
you're not going back. You're not going to look back. Your water's up to your knees. And of course, in, in, in all through your life, your, your knees will, you know, again, like your ankles are key to your walk. So now he's up to his ankles into his knees, and it represents and showing you that your knees now are bent and bowed to your commitment to the Lord. Then he says, again, he measured a thousand, and he brought me through the water to the loins. Now this is where you really become to be strong in the Lord. The Bible talks about in Ephesians 6, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, loins girt about with truth. Uh, Ephesians 6 talks, loins girt about with truth, then 1 Peter 1, verse 13 defines that when he says, gird up the loins of your mind, showing you that the real strength for you is in your mind. Let this mind be in you, it's also Christ Jesus. But this guy now is wading into the Word of God up to his loins, and now his strength has become the Word of God. See how this progression goes? Then he says, And afterward he measured a thousand, a river uh, that I could not pass over, a uh, river were risen, waters to swim in, and a river that could not be passed over. Now as he walks, wades into this, it's a picture of you wading into the Word of God. And it's a picture of your spiritual growth. I think many of your friends, when you made a commitment to Christ, and you told them about it, maybe your parents, maybe your friends, <laughs> Uh, anybody in your life who is unspiritual heard about your conversion to Christ and you're going to church and you were going to really enjoy it and into the Bible, I think all of them told you, don't get too far in over your head. That's exactly what happens. It says waters to swim in. Now, when you get to this point, your whole body is immersed in the water. When you've got the waters to swim in, a couple of things have happened. Now, not only does it get your ankles and your knees and your loins, but now it's also got your neck. There's your will. Stiff neck. Now your will is covered by the water. And uh, all you can see now is, is, uh, is the man's head. And the Bible tells us in the First Corinthians chapter 11 that the head of every man is Christ. So when you get to this point into the water, all they're seeing is your head, and that head by this time is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the other thing about this that's an amazing thing is the fact that uh, he isn't over his head. And uh, this is a picture of your life as a Christian when you get to that place in the Word of God where you go through the ankles, discipleship, basic stuff, into the knees, you make your real commitment, your loins, now the Word of God becomes your strength, and then up over your shoulders, up over your neck, the will of God in your life is now your will, and now you've come to the place where all that the world can see is your head, and your head is Christ, but something else happens. Now, if you read this story, this river is a fast-moving river. And now this man has went so far into this river, as some of you will go so far into the Word of God, that the river, like the Word of God, will sweep you off your feet. Now you're at completely the place where you walk by faith and not by sight because you're in a deep thing where you have no control over and you got to go where the river takes you. And you don't have any say in it anymore. Up to this point, you could kind of feel your way along so you didn't hit a drop-off. 
you know, step one foot out there so it doesn't get too deep. But after you get about 4,000 4, cubits into this thing, you step out there and down you go. The river picks you up. You went through the ankles. You went through the knees. You went through the loins. You went up to your neck. And now you have waters to swim in. And you know as well as I do, if you go fall into a raging river that you cannot get out of any other way, every survivalist will tell you on this planet that if you want to live, swim in the direction of the current that the river is taking you. If you want to die and drown in a fast river, try swimming against the current, the backwards, it will wear you out and you will die. When you get into this river of life and it starts to take you, you know why some of you will never make it? Because you're swimming against the current. You're swimming with all of your might against the natural flow of that book and the Holy Spirit of God where he wants to take you, and you ain't going to make it. That's out of that chapter. That's an incredible book you got there. Why are, you, why are you all so somber? That's a great thing, man. Yeah. And see, this is, what, this is what you get out of here. And this is the river of the sanctuary that wherever it goes, it produces life. And when you begin as a young Christian to go through the ankles, the knees, the loins, and get to the point where you really become uh, swept off your feet by the Word of God, you don't have any say of where you go anymore. You know, a guy that's going down there with the current, he either is going to fight it or he's going to go along with it. He doesn't have a choice now of what he wants to do. You can pass the McDonald's and be hungry and say, I'd like to eat there. That yeah, river just keeps taking you. You can say, well, I'd like to go here. A river just keeps taking you. It's a picture of you getting to the place in your life when you're immersed with the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God and you're giving up everything in your life and it's going to take you where it wants you to go, not where you want to go. Verse 8, Then said he unto me, These waters issue out toward the east country and go down into the desert and go into the sea which brought forth under the sea. The waters shall be healed and it shall come to pass that everything that liveth uh, which moveth whithersoever the river shall come, shall live, and there shall be very great multitude of fish because of these waters shall come here. There's your soul winning. You get in the river and let it take you on. At the end of your life, there will be a great multitude of fish because God called you to be a fisher of men. Well, that's what you got on 47. 48. Now, here I have my diagram is a satellite view. And this will be the whole land. And Larkin laid this out. And now the holy oblation that once was a real close-up, then it was a bird's eye. Now it's like a satellite view from 600 miles up. And I have now on my page of my Bible the whole land grant. And in chapter 48, chapter 48, uh, he deals with the royal land grant that was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. And he lays out now for you all of the tribes. And Larkin in his book does a masterful job of drawing out the land grant that was given to Abraham and then puts the tribes in their order, Dan, 
Asher, Nephilim, Manasseh, Ephraim, uh, Reuben, Judah, and then the Lord's portion, the prince's portion, all of that, and then Benjamin, Simon, Issachar, Zebulun, and Gad, all in the right order with the right place, and uh, everything is right there for you at a glance. And I have that in my, that's my last picture, that's my satellite view of it. So, you know, um, now, now, we're going to hold up right here, and somebody please remember where we ended for me next time. But we're not done yet. We still got another whole section to go through here that I want to do this. I told you this was a major deal.